One of the most confounding stories to come out of World War II is the story of Hairu Onoda. Hairu Onoda was a Japanese officer who fought on an island in the Philippines. And in February 1945, the Americans took that island with an overwhelming victory. But Hairu and three of his men avoided capture by escaping to the mountainous jungle on the island. Unfortunately for these men, because they were on the run in the jungle, they had no way of hearing the news when Japan surrendered and the war had officially come to an end. And so, for the next 29 years, Hairu and the three men fought their own guerrilla war in the Philippine jungle. They would raid villages for food, engage in small skirmishes, unaware that their lives had become unnecessarily hard and dangerous and that they were fighting for a lost cause. The local villagers started leaving leaflets in the jungle saying, the war ended on the 15th of August, come down from the mountains. But Hairu and his men thought this was surely just a trick to get them to come out, so they stayed put. Before long, the Japanese army started flying over the jungle themselves and they dropped their own leaflets, telling Hairu and his men that the war was over and that they could surrender. Hairu concluded that they were fake and commanded his men to stay where they were. So then the Japanese sent in Hairu's brother, and his brother stood at the edge of the jungle with a loudspeaker calling for Hairu to surrender. But Hairu still didn't believe the war was over. This was just an even more elaborate trick to finally get him to come out. In the end, the Japanese army sent his commanding officer, who by this stage was well into his 80s, to go to the Philippines and order Hairu to surrender. And only then did Hairu and his men finally come out of the jungle and stop fighting. Nearly 30 years of their lives wasted because they didn't acknowledge the victory of the Allied forces. If only he had listened, their lives could have been so different. They could have enjoyed a life of peace. Now, the reason I'm telling you this story is because the book of Revelation keeps telling us time and time again that the war is over. It keeps calling us to acknowledge that through the work of Jesus Christ, God has won the victory over Satan and all those who rebel against him. Revelation keeps calling us to surrender our sinful and rebellious way of living and to join the winning side before it's too late. Before the opportunity to be at peace with God is over and our ignorance costs us our lives. And once again, that is the message we see here in Revelation 20. In fact, this is our final warning, our final call to get on board with the winning side before it's too late. And as we think about uh, this message in Revelation 20 tonight, I've broken it down under two headings. First of all, Christ has secured victory for his people. And secondly, Christ will return to sentence his enemies. Please do keep the passage open in front of you as we work our way through it. Okay, so our first observation is that Christ has already secured victory for his people. Christ has already secured victory for his people. At the start of chapter 20, we're wound back to the beginning of the tape again, as John sees a new vision unfold. He sees an angel come down from heaven holding a great chain and the key to the abyss. Remember that dragon from chapter 12? Well, here he is again. And just like before, we're told his true identity. This dragon is Satan. And the angel has come to chain him up and throw him into the abyss for a thousand years so that he won't deceive the nations anymore. 
And once Satan is bound, John sees people sitting on thrones with authority to judge. He sees the souls of those who have been martyred for staying faithful to Christ. And we're told that these people have come to life and reigned with Christ for these a thousand years. Now, these first six verses of chapter 20 are some of the most difficult and controversial in the Bible. When is this millennium? Well, there are a few ways that Christians have answered that question. Uh, I don't have time to look at each view in turn, and you may disagree with the view that I take, and that's okay because this is not a primary issue. I don't believe that what we're seeing here in these verses is something that is still to happen. And I don't think this is a literal period of a thousand years. This vision that John sees is symbolic of something that has already begun and is an ongoing reality. This millennium is in progress, right? Not me. It began when Christ came down to earth and it will end when he returns. And this first section highlights two ongoing realities, two distinctive features of this era that Christ has established. First of all, notice that Satan is chained. Satan is chained. Now you may pick up a newspaper or turn on the TV and immediately come to the conclusion that Satan isn't bound at all, but is in fact alive and well going about his business on the earth. How can Satan be said to be bound and sealed in the abyss with the world in the state that it's in? How can we say he's not still deceiving the nations? Surely this is something that is going to happen in the future. Well, the answer to those objections is found when we look at the rest of Scripture. Matthew, Mark and Luke all record the parable of the strong man being bound. When Jesus was accused of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, he said this in Mark 3. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. What Jesus is teaching here is that the kingdom of God had arrived with him. As he went about casting out demons, he was demonstrating that Satan had been seized and bound. Although Satan is still present in the world, he is on a leash. He is now limited completely in what he can do. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 2 verse 15. He says, Christ disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So scripture is clear that by becoming a man, going to his death on the cross and rising again from the dead, Jesus Christ defeated Satan. The war was won there and then. Christ's victory over the devil and the powers of evil happened at the cross. Now, as for the nations no longer being deceived, well, in Luke 2, Simeon declares that Christ is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Jesus said in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. So because of what Christ has done on the cross, because he has defeated Satan, the gospel is now available to all nations. Before Christ came, that wasn't the case. But now the devil can't keep the nations in the dark because the light of the world has come. The good news of sins forgiven and eternal life is being proclaimed throughout the world and the darkness is giving way to the light. And every time we see someone come to trust in the Lord Jesus, 
we see afresh just how unable to deceive the nations Satan is. Maybe you look at the world and you feel like Satan is running riot. The church is losing ground and you just get so discouraged. If that's you, then remember that Satan is bound. He is powerless to stop the advance of the gospel. It may not look like it, but it's the kingdom of God that is in the ascendancy, not the kingdom of Satan. God's church is getting bigger and bigger every day and there is nothing that Satan can do to stop that. Now, the second reality flows as a natural consequence of Satan's defeat. The other hallmark of this millennium is that saints reign. Saints reign. In in verse 4 to 6, John is seeing what this victory over Satan means for God's people. Because Satan has been bound, because he is unable to deceive the nations, people who were once spiritually dead can come alive and reign with Christ. And that spiritual reality is an eternal, eternal reality. It doesn't change when we leave our earthly bodies. When we die, we will go on to reign with Christ, waiting for the day he brings this world to a close and he gives us our new glorified heavenly bodies. This is what this picture of the people sitting on the thrones we see in verse 4 is all about. It's a visual representation of what has been accomplished for us on the cross. As God's people, we get to share in Christ's triumph over Satan, both now and for eternity. Now, when we read verse 4, it's easy to think that this is saying that only people who are martyred or beheaded for their faith will reign with Christ. Especially when verse 5 seems to, to suggest that not all the dead come to life until the millennium is over. But verse 6 tells us that this group of martyrs includes or represents everyone who is shared in the first resurrection. And as Christians, we have all shared in the first resurrection. We have all been spiritually resurrected. When by God's grace we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we passed from death to life. Verse 6 also says that the people of mind here are those who have become a royal priesthood and will not have to face the second death, which again is something that is true of all believers. So reigning with Christ is something that is a reality for all Christians. We are seated in the heavenly places. As for the dead in verse 5, well they are those who have not experienced this first resurrection. They are people who have not put their trust in Christ and when they die they don't go to be with Christ. They await Christ's judgment. Okay so in this vision we're seeing Christians reigning with Christ but why are these Christians shown as martyrs? What's the point being made here? Well I think it's a reminder that following Jesus isn't going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. If you were one of the first readers of this book, you've maybe lost loved ones or a Christian brother or sister at the hands of the Roman Empire. You're facing persecution and possibly even death yourself. You need to hear that you're actually one of the victorious ones. It's actually you who has a place among those who will reign forever. You need to hear that even though it doesn't look like it right now, you're on the winning side. And that is no less vital for us to know today. When we see God's people persecuted and killed for their faith around the world, when we ourselves experience suffering and hardship for remaining faithful to Christ, when following Christ costs us, we need to remember that we are the victorious ones. We are on the winning side. We are the ones who will reign forever with Christ. That's the point these verses are making. Christ has already secured the victory for his people.
no matter how things seem, Satan has been bound by Christ's work on the cross and we will reign with Christ now and for eternity. Maybe you needed to be reminded of that tonight. Maybe recently hopelessness and despair or even apathy have been feelings you've been finding increasingly hard to shake off. Remember what side you're on. Remember that Christ's victory is our victory and that we will reign with him for all eternity and let that change our perspective on what we so often see around us. Okay, so Christ has secured victory for his people. Our second observation is that Christ will return to sentence his enemies. Christ will return to sentence his enemies. In 2008, a film came out called Vantage Point. And in that film, the President of the United States is assassinated while addressing a crowd in Spain. But not long after that happens, the film starts over. And we see the same event take place from someone else's eyes, a different person's perspective. You see, Vantage Point doesn't have a linear storyline. It keeps replaying the same event from different perspectives. And as we see those different perspectives, as viewers, we begin to unravel exactly what happened and why. By the end of the film, we're left feeling like we know the truth of what happened to the president really, really well, because we've seen it seven or eight times. Now, the book of Revelation is kind of like Vantage Point. We keep seeing the assassination of evil and all those who stand in opposition to God again and again. We have had these events in the second half of chapter 20 a few times now. In fact, we've literally just had them at the end of chapter 19. And each time we see them, we get a slightly different perspective. This time, we witness the Machiavellian mastermind behind it all. The one who is really responsible for organising the final rebellion that will happen when Christ is about to return is Satan. Verse 7 tells us that when this millennium is over, when Christ is about to return, Satan will be released for a short time. And he's released to play his role in this end of the world event. Because he has been bound, he hasn't been able to gather the nations together against God in a final global rebellion. But when he's released, he will do just that. Verse 8 tells us that he will deceive the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them for battle against the Lord. Now, don't worry too much about the names Gog and Magog. Uh, they come from Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, and basically, they're just a short way of saying God's enemies in the world. Now, this rebellion that is being described here is the same rebellion we see elsewhere in the Bible. It's the same rebellion that the man of lawlessness leads in 2 Thessalonians 2. It's also the same rebellion the beast has led in Revelation 17. Um, what we're seeing here is that this Antichrist figure who will come and lead this rebellion of the nations against God is really just Satan's puppet. Satan is really the one who's pulling the strings. And then in verse 9, we have a scene like something out of Lord of the Rings. God's people um, are taking refuge in Helm's Deep and God's enemies advance on them from all sides. But just as soon as God's people appear surrounded, just as soon as it appears all is lost, help arrives. God sends fire down from heaven and devours all those who have opposed him and attacked his people. The powers of evil don't stand a chance against God's firepower. And this rebellion is destroyed as quickly as it started. 
In reality, Satan never stood a chance. He has only been released from his chains for a short time so that he could be sentenced for his crimes against God. And that's exactly what we see in verse 10. Satan is thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The one who led humanity astray in the Garden of Eden is finally gone forever. We've come full circle. The serpent who's uh, had his head crushed ever since Jesus died on the cross is now thrown into a lake of burning sulfur to be tormented forever where he is no longer able to deceive anyone or lead anyone into sin. But Satan isn't the only enemy of God who receives uh, an eternal sentence for his crimes against God. In verse 11, the vision shifts and John sees a great white throne with Christ seated on it. And before the throne is everyone who has ever lived, great and small, and books are opened. And these books are images of God's perfect, all-knowing memory. God knows and he remembers everything that every human being who has ever lived has ever done, said or thought. And each person is judged for what they had done. Only those whose names are written in the book of life escape God's judgment. This book of life contains the names of all those who put their trust in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. All those who by faith in Christ have had their sins forgiven and have put on the righteousness of Christ. They are the only people who will avoid this sentence that is about to come. But as for all those who rejected Christ, all those who rebelled against God and lived their life in opposition to him, when they stand before this great white white throne, they will realise that they backed the wrong horse. They will realise that they are on the losing side. And as punishment for their rebellion against God, they will receive a death sentence. Verse 15 says, Anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The consequences for rebelling against God are severe. Those who don't repent of their sin and throw themselves upon the grace of God provided for them in Christ will be thrown into hell for eternity. Now, as we think about how we respond to this passage, we need to acknowledge that this is heartbreaking. This is really difficult for us to hear because we all have loved ones who haven't yet put their trust in Christ. We all have people in our lives who we are desperate to turn to him and be saved. And we need to take that pain and that anguish to God. And we need to come to him in prayer, prayer for the lost, prayer for the prodigals. And we need to allow this passage to give us a fresh injection of enthusiasm for evangelism. A new boldness to proclaim the gospel to everyone and to tell them about what Jesus has done for them. Let me ask you, is there someone you know who would read the Bible with you? Is there someone that you rub shoulders with who you could show some undeserved kindness and love to and start a conversation with? Let's allow this passage to motivate us to be intentional and prayerful about who we can be telling about Jesus so that more and more people avoid an eternity without Christ. But as well as that, we also need to take comfort from this passage. We need to take comfort that our names are written in the book of life. As believers in Christ, we avoid this death sentence. And we need to meditate on what Christ has saved us from. 
The Lord Jesus has rescued us from an eternity in hell. He saved us from eternal destruction. He's paid the ultimate price so that we could reign with him in his glorious presence for all eternity. And that should cause us to rejoice and to marvel once again at his saving grace. Why not take time to reflect on that this week? Take time to allow the wonder of God's grace to hit you again as you think about it. And let it increase your love and appreciation for Jesus and what he's done. Now, just as I finish tonight, maybe you're listening to this and you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus Christ. You can't say that on the day that Christ returns, your name will be written in the book of life. I want to tell you that this death sentence doesn't have to hang over you. You don't have to stay on the losing side. Maybe you're a bit like Hairu Onoda, who wasted his life fighting in the jungle for no reason. Maybe you've had leaflets of the gospel message dropped on you for a long time, but you still haven't surrendered because you don't believe it to be true. Maybe you have family who have come to you and have pleaded with you to stop fighting and to join the winning side. If that's you, you need to realise that this war you're trying to fight on your own is already over. Jesus won the war a long time ago. It is Jesus and all those who love him who will reign for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. You can have assurance that you will avoid God's judgment and reign with Christ. You can live the rest of your life enjoying the peace he has secured for those who love him. You can live the rest of your life knowing you are on the winning side. If you come to God and say sorry for rebelling against him, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, the one he sent to save you and to take the punishment uh, that our rebellion deserved on the cross, then God will count you as one of his own. Don't back the wrong horse. When this world comes to an end, there's only one winner. Come in and join Christ before it's too late. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. And we thank you uh, for the truth that you have won the victory over Satan and over sin and death. And we thank you that because of what you've done on the cross, our names have been written in the book of life. Lord, what wonderful grace. Thank you so much for saving us. And Lord, we do come to you um, with the pain and anguish that so many of our loved ones don't know you yet. And Lord, we ask that you would save them. Lord, in your mercy, would you intervene in their lives? Would you lead them to a knowledge of the truth? May they come to know you and be saved. Lord, would you give us a greater enthusiasm and motivation for evangelism? Help us to witness to the people around us. And Lord, we pray that our lives would give you more and more glory and that we would honour your name. And we pray all these things in the holy and precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.